I'm Amrit Swali. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. I'm Ben Horton and I'm joined today in the Chatham House Media Studio by my colleague Amrit. Amrit, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Ben. How are you? I am really good. Looking forward to a bit of time away. Feels like it's time off, you know? Yeah, I feel that. August, everybody's away. Hmm. And I I feel like we need to be joining the masses. Do you have any exciting plans? Well, yeah, I'm I'm planning a bit of a, a staycation in the Lake District. Interesting. How do you define a staycation? Uh, clearly not how you define a staycation. How do I define a staycation? I don't know. That was the question. <laughs> Why was that the question? You wouldn't have asked it if you, if, if you did. I, no, but I'm, there's a lot of <laughs> tension over what a staycation is. Oh, because, I see. of course, it's an accessible thing and a normal thing for some, but for others it's not. I guess I mean not going abroad, which I realise is not sort of strictly a staycation. Mm. Well, uh, hopefully we can shine a bit more light on uh, the content that we have for this episode of Undercurrents. <laughs> Apologies for that. So, Amrit, what did you talk about on today's episode? I spoke to my colleagues in the International Security Programme, Esther Naylor and Isabella Wilkinson. Esther and Bella are both researchers focusing on all things cyber and technology. I guess you could say they are my partners in cybercrime, but for legal reasons, we should not say that. <laughs> We've... So just to make it clear, Chatham House doesn't engage in cybercrime. No, 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 of course not. You just fight. You're tough on the causes of cybercrime. We crime. just like to know as much as possible about it. Great. So what did you talk about with Bella and Esther? We spoke about ransomware. So as I'm sure listeners will know, we've seen some pretty high profile ransomware attacks in the past few months, particularly the Colonial Pipeline hack a few months back and also the attack on Ireland's health service. So I chatted to Esther and Bella about what ransomware is, how we talk about it in the confines of international security. We also try to ascertain why it's been pushed to the top of some global agendas. So recently at the G7 summit, President Biden and Vladimir Putin spoke about it. And the US has also made a lot of internal developments on tackling ransomware too. So it was a really overarching conversation and super interesting. Absolutely. Can't wait to listen to it. But before then, you'll also hear a conversation which I recorded a few weeks ago with Dr. Agnes Kalamar, who is the new Secretary General of Amnesty International, the human rights organisation. And we had a similarly wide ranging conversation about basically the state of the international human rights system today. Dr. Kalamar is uh, relatively new to her post. And so we discussed the challenges that Amnesty International and other human rights organisations face in doing their work, how governments are approaching the issue of human rights at the moment, the effects of the pandemic on the human rights system, and basically whether the United Nations, as it's currently constituted, is fit for purpose in terms of protecting people's human rights. So yeah, a a lot to get into for sure. Well, that sounds like two very complimentary interviews. Let's take a listen. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Agnes Kalamal, who since March 2021 has been the Secretary General of Amnesty International. A human rights expert, Agnes worked previously as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, 
and also as the director of the Global Freedom of Expression Project at Columbia University. Agnes, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Congratulations on your new post at Amnesty International. I, I just wanted to begin whether you could give our listeners a sense of the challenges that Amnesty is trying to address in 2021, what the issues are that your organisation is prioritising under your leadership. I think the, the, the answer to your question is very much driven by our analysis of the environment. And of course, whether it's Amnesty or another human rights organization, we are all facing an unprecedented set of challenges as far as human rights is concerned, some of which are existentialist in their implication for humankind. I have in mind the environment, which is probably the most serious threat ever confronted by our humanity, a climate emergency. Yet, in spite of the importance of the threat, it continues to be largely underestimated. And what we see around the world are short-sighted decisions, which have very negative implications for our capacity, in fact, to survive uh, the transformation of the climate. So this is one of the long-term historical forces that we are considering at Amnesty and, and, and beyond Amnesty, no doubt. Uh, a second historical force, which is having dramatic implications for human rights, is the economic model or the economic system. The 21st century capitalism has reached a stage where inequality appears to be one of its uh, driving or certainly universal, I will say, uh, characteristics. Over the last 20 years, the uh, globalization of our economy has led to or has resulted into increasing inequality within states and between uh, states. So the global economy of our decade appears to be very much a story of low wages, high unemployment, privatization, delocalization, all of which have direct implications for conflict, for uh, the multiplication of, uh, of protest, increasing violence uh, on all sides. So that's a second historical force which uh, we are considering and uh, seeking to, to determine how best to respond to it. A third one is industrial revolution, the technology that is now everywhere, the information technology, but also artificial intelligence, biotechnology, robotics are really transforming our societies. They are transforming the way we interact with one another, the way governments interact with one another, transforming, in fact, what it means to be human. And that will have long, long-term implications for human rights protection. A fourth historical transformative characteristic which is impacting on our environment is uh, demography and demographic divide. It is something that is often uh, neglected, but I believe very important for human rights organization. 
our planet is not only one divided according to uh, income, to climate, to uh, access to internet. It is also one that is divided on a generational basis. There is a rich and old world, and there is a poor and emerging young and restless world. A staggering 90% of youth lives in the world's lowest income countries. I mean, that too uh, must be apprehended from a human rights standpoint. And I often begin with those four description of our environment because they are overwhelming. They are everywhere. They are historically that they started before our era and they will go on long after our era. But they are coming on top of very punctual changes, a punctual form of instability, which is the transformation of the international system, the conflict between China, the United States, and the disruption caused by Russia. And that is having direct implications at the moment for human rights in the form of a trade war, conflict, proxy conflict, multiplication of hotspot, arms trade, you know, colonization in one way or, or the other, you know, very present very much topical in terms of apprehending the international human rights environment. So as you can see, this is an environment of unprecedented challenges, both by their scale, by their scope, by the fact that there are so many of them at one given point in time. A defining moment for our century, no doubt. Not a small list of things that we <laughs> that we need to grapple with. I wanted to ask you a question. Maybe traditionally, organisations such as yours have focused very much on a certain definition of human rights, which focuses on the kind of civil rights and and political rights. But obviously, in in the picture that you just painted for us, there there are so many other different areas of of life that you are taking account of now: economic, social, cultural, environmental. I just wondered what you think this shift means for organizations such as yourselves. How, how will it change the work that you do to be including these other forms of human rights? So the, the first thing I, I have to say from the standpoint of Amnesty International, at least, is that it embraced a focus on economic and social rights 20 years ago. I will not go as far as to say that it is mainstream throughout the organization. But if you look back at our work for the last 20 years, you will find multiple examples of uh, research and campaign on issues from forced eviction, right to education for pregnant girls, austerity uh, measures, uh, the COVID-19 situation, the COVID-19 vaccine, and so on. So, there has been a clear commitment on the part of Amnesty to integrate economic and social rights for a number of years now. There is absolutely no doubt, though, that the current environment has demonstrated that the indivisibility of human rights should be a key focus for our work, that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to apprehend conceptually 
And from a political standpoint, the protection of civil and political rights without considering the economic basis that may give rise to the violation of those uh, rights. You know, the right to protest is a case in point. Around the world, you have people taking to the street very often in response to economic policies, to austerity measures taken by their government, which are impacting on their right to dignity and, and to access to a reasonable income. So indivisibility is a thread for Amnesty International. It's um, a key priority for the organization. Over the next uh, four or five years, we have identified two goals. One is around civic space. The second is around combating inequality, and that is putting the focus on uh, economic, social, uh, and cultural rights, including in a context of uh, climate justice. So it is not for an organization like Amnesty, I will not suggest that it is an easy uh, work to do. There is a tradition within the organization. It has had a long-standing tradition of focus on, uh, on uh, civil and political rights, but there is an absolute commitment to tackle the ESCR dimension of our mandate. And I think that what happened in 2020 uh, with uh, COVID was, in fact, unfortunate, extremely painful, determinant, uh, determination, uh, clear proof that there is no other way to move forward. If you look at 2020, what you have are uh, people dying, 4 million to now, largely because their governments have failed to invest in the public health system. Uh, governments have failed to protect strategic industries, which has resulted in them being unable to provide their population with such things as basic as a mask or indeed as oxygen. So we, us people, have paid the price of 20 years of austerity measures of economic policies that have been driven by delocalization, including of strategic industries and privatization, including of public health. It is very clear to people, I think, and certainly to human rights organization, that those policies have led to 4 million deaths. I will not say that every one of those deaths can be reasonably attributed to those policies, but a fair amount. It is also very clear in 2020 that the health workers on the front line, whenever they try to complain about their working conditions, about the fact that they could not access sufficient medicine or, or just protective materials, they were targeted by their governments. Some of them were even imprisoned. Some of them were censored. We've seen that happening in particular in, uh, in China, but that was not by far the only place. We have seen around the world, in fact, people being arrested for breaking a curfew, but they broke the curfew because they had no other means to feed their family, because there was no social protection. They had no access to food uh, and savings that allowed them to, uh, to survive a prolonged lockdown. So police repression in the context of lockdown, in the context of violations of curfew, is a phenomenon that we at Amnesty International have monitored throughout 2020. 
So if there was ever any need to demonstrate the intermingling, the interaction between all of our rights, 2020 very sadly, very cruelly put it on the table for us to see. Thank you very much. Now, obviously, uh, I mentioned at the start that you have a lot of experience working with the United Nations. I wanted to ask you, obviously, against this context that you've set out, whether the international human rights system, in your mind, is up to the task of addressing these challenges. Is it fit for purpose? And if not, what changes are needed to really bring this kind of indivisibility issue to the fore and really find some sort of meaningful solutions? Well, no, I mean, clearly... The UN system is not fit for purpose, but the action of governments are not helping. Looking at 2020, at a time when the world needed global cooperation, we got got just the opposite. Uh, It started with uh, China censoring information regarding COVID. It then led to the United States withdrawing from WHO and other um, mechanisms Uh, And it ended, or it's not ended, but it's now in 2021 characterized by the rich countries refusing to share the technology uh, for the vaccine and to ensure the multiplication of the production of the vaccine. So, you know, yes, those uh, the UN system is not fit for purpose, but in fact, what's not fit for purpose are the governments that are part of that system, which are unable to conceive of a global perspective and global interest when it seemingly um, goes against very short-sighted views. So that's the first point we have to make. Second, the difficulties, of course, with critiquing the UN right now or critiquing the multilateral system is that whenever we do so, we do so in a context where the UN itself is being the object of an organized campaign of denigration and undermining by uh, individuals and states that are intent of uh, weakening the multilateral system for their own um, purpose. And as a human rights organization, we do not want to be instrumentalized by um, governments such as uh, Russia, for instance, or others uh, who are very committed to ensuring that the UN is as weak as possible, whether it is um, in terms of its uh, capacity to providing humanitarian assistance, its uh, capacity to monitor human rights violations in conflict, or to have have a say or have a role to play in uh, preventing uh, violations within a country such as uh, China or Myanmar. So critiquing the UN in a context where many actors are already weakening it is indeed a fairly difficult position. That said, in my view, we don't have a choice. We cannot hide the fact that uh, the UN is indeed not fit for purpose and that we have to be prepared to name the problems and to point to its weakness. The Secretary General of the United Nations has not been a very strong advocate, in my view, for some of the essential pillars of the UN. I have here in mind the the human rights uh, dimension of the United Nations. So that's an issue. 
the WHO has found it very difficult to navigate the conflict between various states and to demonstrate to the state that there is only one way forward, which is one of uh, working together. So these are just weak, weak institutions. They need to be reformed. You know, they need to be reinvented. We need to come up with alternative models. Sometimes, however, there have been moments where the international community has been able to come together. I have here in mind the triple IM. It is the um, international investigatory uh, mechanism that have been put in place for countries such as uh, Syria or Myanmar. Those mechanisms are effective and they certainly have uh, met a gap. So they have, you know, when they have been established, we have demonstrated the capacity of the international community at times to put aside very short-sighted interest for the purpose of a common goal. That is a kind of behavior we want to see duplicated, replicated. We've seen that yesterday, as a matter of fact, when the uh, Human Rights Council uh, adopted a crucially important, groundbreaking, historically and uh, practically resolution on anti-racism, where it uh, named the police violence and racism within the police, uh, where it named systemic racism across the world, where it uh, highlighted uh, slavery as something that is still lives on in our society, and when it puts in place a mechanism for the monitoring of police violence and for taking actions collectively against uh, police violence and racism within the police. That is an international community that comes together with a vision of itself when it is committed to addressing um, you know, a fundamental uh, problem in our society that is universal. It was driven by the Africa group, which is great. So there are moments where within the UN, the multilateral system suddenly picked up and, you know, offers a way forward. I wish there will be more of them. And these are the moments that we need to build upon, that we need to encourage, that we need to support you know, and continue to be creative. Thank you. And, and it's great to have those points made about where the successes can be found within the system. Mm. I wanted to ask a question about a particular country, actually, and that's China, which you've already mentioned. Mm. But obviously, China is a major player within the UN system and in the global economy more broadly. And I wanted to just ask whether you think that China's influence in economic terms has had an impact on the sort of motivations or the incentives of other states to support human rights issues. And obviously in, in the West, so sat here in London, we've, we've been thinking a lot about relations with China in recent months with the UK's integrated review, having quite a nuanced, two-sided message on China. And obviously what we've seen in Hong Kong and Xinjiang providing a, a lot of fuel to the to the fire of people saying we should really be confronting China more. So I just wondered whether you have a view on how best countries can deal with engagement with China, given the risk of hypocrisy. <laughs> being yeah. The only way you can engage with China is uh, resolutely, courageously, strategically, 
and uh, be prepared to do that in the long term. It's not a short run. It's going to be a long haul, I will say. And it cannot be done uh, half-heartedly, in my view. We know, you've already mentioned, so there, there are within China multiple reasons for great concern, whether it's Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, or more generally, freedom of expression and so on. You've also already highlighted China's influence abroad. The government of China is absolutely using its economic might, but also its military strength to undermine human rights protection abroad and to threaten others, such as um, countries in and around the South China Sea. I have seen that many times at the UN, where China is bullying others whenever the Western uh, groups have come up with a critical resolution against China, a large number of countries will then come to the rescue of China by putting a counter resolution, uh, highlighting um, how well China is doing, including in its uh, treatment of the people of, uh, of Xinjiang. This is the second economic power in the world. It is a very large country. Its technological strength is demonstrated um, every day. And unfortunately, governments, I think, have been prepared to set aside their human rights critique of China in the name of their you know, economic gains. So I will say that for governments to approach China, in my view, in a way that I would expect them to do, they must do so with a long-term perspective, with a vision perspective. What kind of global society do they want their grandchildren to inherit? It seems to me, in view of the economic figures, in view of the fact that the macroeconomic data demonstrate clear stagnation of the lower classes, lower income, and an abrupt rise in the, um, the wealth of the super rich, this whole economic system is not benefiting the poor or the middle class. So, you know, to pretend that protecting economic interest in China, to protect our China policy, production, uh, lines of production uh, localized in China and so on, benefit everybody, that is not being proven by uh, the economic data that are being made available right now. I wanted to ask now something that brings us back to amnesty and really the strategies that you see as necessary for amnesty to do its work successfully and in the current climate, obviously with all of the challenges that we've been speaking about today and in a context arguably of rising authoritarianism in, in many states, including some of the more established democracies. I suppose one way of describing how Amnesty International has done its work in the past is this naming and shaming strategy of calling out governments for bad practice. But do you think that that strategy works still? Is there still a, a benefit to doing that? And if not, what other strategies are necessary? How will you be evolving the way that Amnesty does its work? I think there is some kind of uh, misconception about naming and shaming. Yes, it has been 
or it will be an important dimension of the communication of you know amnesty's work but it is certainly not the only one the end game is not about shaming a government never it's about telling the truth and demanding respect for human rights redress for violation reparation and so on alongside what you call naming and shaming there will be a range of um, constructive strategic interaction uh, with government to demand changes in behavior to offer support and, and training. Yes, there may be many governments that may ignore our findings. And in those uh, situations, shaming them may play a role. It's more about putting pressure on them in one way or, or another. And if shaming can work, then let's do that. But if shaming does not work, we're not going to continue doing it blindly just because we've done that for the last 60 years. We will be, we are looking and we are implementing other ways of pressurizing uh, governments or convincing people with influence within government to act differently. But, you know, I think... To me, you know, one fundamental issue that is often uh, maybe forgotten here is that there are, at the moment, that we are confronting a, a range of problems around information. So, naming and shaming, you know, maybe one side of the of the story. It is certainly, in my view, not as dramatic and not as dangerous, by far as disinformation, as propaganda, as, um, you know, attacks on truth, attacks on scientific data that we see, we see everywhere. What the environment is showing, though, is that shaming a government for doing what it is um, doing must be followed up by pressure coming from other actors. So I think there is still a role to play for shaming. Unfortunately, at the moment, while in the past we could have expected a number of governments or other actors being prepared to use that shaming for the purpose of demanding better protection, that is not happening at the moment. Or if it is happening, it's too politically instrumentalized to become uh, an authentic, uh, meaningful pressure for positive um, change. The, the data we're collecting, which may lead to an information message of, uh, of shaming, almost falls in a vacuum. There are insufficient pressure points afterwards. That, to me, is really the problem that we are confronting at the moment. And of course, as a human rights organization, we need to rise up to that challenge, understanding that we do not have the same allies that we had in the past, that many governments are not prepared to challenge those that are violating. We see that just talking about, for instance, this last week, Egypt was welcomed wholeheartedly in the United States uh, for a range of meetings, including at the level of Egyptian intelligence person, security person, uh, these very person that are implicated in some of the uh, 
the, the worst human rights violation in the country. Uh, so shaming Egypt for what it is doing, which is frankly abominable, does not have the impact that we could expect because uh, the United States and the rest of um, the Western world certainly are not prepared to challenge Egypt. Neither are they prepared to challenge Saudi Arabia. They may be more prepared to challenge Iran. But, you know, the geostrategic environment within which we, we operate increases the likelihood of instrumentalization of, um, of the human rights narrative. And that is too something that is concerning. As an organization with a 60 years history, Amnesty must be prepared and is prepared to be bold, uh, not to look at the months ahead and years ahead as business as usual. We are absolutely committed to be testing new avenues, whether it's a communication, campaigning, research. Uh, we are committed to focus on a range of actors, including non-state actors, including corporate actors. We understand that partnership with other organizations, with those that are disrupting uh, the civic space at the moment, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, who are reinventing civic engagement, working alongside them and with them is essential for our own effectiveness and for the effectiveness of the uh, human rights um, agenda. So all of those commitments and objectives are uh, squarely in our agenda uh, and uh, in, in our plan in, in the years ahead. So please come and work with us, join us, work alongside us, work with us. The um, only thing that is going to stop the downward spiral is if civil society you know, rise to the challenge, reinvent what needs to be reinvented, strengthen what it has done effectively and continue to do effectively, challenge itself and is prepared, prepared to, be, um, to be bold, to be future focused and to be courageous. That's a fantastic note to end. Agnes Kalamad, thanks so much for joining us today and, and thanks for so much of your time. Thank you to you for this opportunity. joined by two wonderful international security friends, Esther Naylor and Isabella Wilkinson. So cyberspace is something the international security program here at Chatham House has been following and researching for quite some time. And it's obviously something that we've covered with undercurrents too in the form of a mini series. But ransomware particularly is really making huge waves at the moment. In the past few months, especially, we've seen some very high profile and very disruptive cyber attacks. Could you tell us what ransomware actually is and what's the scale of the problem? So ransomware is a malicious software or malware which has been developed to block access to a computer system or encrypt data until a sum of money is paid. And the idea is that once this ransom is paid, then the attackers will hand over some sort of a crypto or a key so that the victim can get access to their systems and data. And if you think about this in terms of your home, it might be similar to a burglar coming into your house and changing the locks on your doors and barring you access. 
to your house. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward. So you pay the ransom and you get access to your house or your data or your systems. And that's not necessarily the case because in in some of the more recent high-profile ransomware attacks, sometimes you will get access to the decryptor, but you don't necessarily get access to your systems. And if you have a ransomware attack on a piece of critical infrastructure, for example, a healthcare system, you don't necessarily have the luxury of time to try and get your systems back up online. And so ransomware, so this malicious software, ultimately plays on the vulnerabilities of people, processes, and systems. And the most common entry point of ransomware is through phishing emails. So emails that you receive with a link you click on that link and that's how the ransomware enters your systems. The pandemic has highlighted our reliance on technology and according to an Interpol assessment on the impact of COVID-19 in 2020, it's shown that a significant shift between the target of individuals and small businesses in terms of ransomware to corporations and government and critical infrastructure and research from chain analysis has shown that criminals have made around 350 million US dollars in ransomware payments in 2020. And this is an increase in 311% in one year. So some recent examples of attacks on critical infrastructure include disruption to the Swedish supermarket chain co-op, to JBS meat supplier, to the Irish healthcare system and to Colonial Pipeline. Great. Thank you, Esther. Obviously, you've painted this picture of ransomware as a very common problem that can affect pretty much everyone. But as we've seen in the news recently, and as you mentioned, this type of cyber attack is affecting big corporate assets and critical national infrastructure too. So Bella, I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about the politics behind ransomware and why we should see it as an international security concern? Of course, we have these norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace, but how does this play out in the international arena when it comes to cooperation and collaboration and talking about this on a global scale? Of course, happy to. And thanks so much for having me, Amrit. It's great to be having this conversation. Ransomware cyber attacks are an international security concern for a variety of reasons. They threaten the stability, security and well-being of societies at the individual level, at the company level and at the government level. They also have the ability to have kind of global ripple effects, depending on their targets, the perpetrators, the victims, the consequences, and so forth, as I mentioned. They have immense consequences for human rights, political rights, civil liberties worldwide. They have the potential to vastly contort geopolitical stability to some degree. And they also have the ability to begin to question or fray international norms regarding responsible state behavior on the one hand, but also responsible state behavior in cyberspace, regardless of the actors behind ransomware in the first place. Just picking up on some of these points, Bella, ransomware and cybercrime have only recently started coming up in global discussions, most prolifically at the G7 and the Biden-Putin summit. When leaders get together to talk about cyber attacks, how are they approaching it? Are they doing so from a position of deterrence, threat, mitigation, Are they looking at how to effectively respond? And are these conversations constructive? And what are the key tension points? So I think I'm going to give quite a frustrating answer here and say it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of all of it. Global discussions between leaders at the highest diplomatic level regarding cybercrime, regarding cyber attacks, have the potential to be much more productive than they are. 
Um, I know that's a polite answer, maybe a frustrating answer, but I'll go into it with a couple examples. The first one I'd want to give is, as you mentioned, the Biden-Putin summit, just weeks after the colonial pipeline hack. I'm sure Esther as well can give a great overview of the colonial pipeline hack and the group behind it. But there were definitely talks of this group dark side being based in Russia. There was a lot of talk about how much Putin and Putin's administration knew and didn't know. And so to summarize, the summit itself was a little bit awkward. Biden definitely emphasized that cyber attacks, particularly on critical national infrastructure, have to be off limits with a capital O and a capital L. But really, how productive can a high level exchange that lasts, I don't know, half an hour, a couple hours at the highest diplomatic level in a room surrounded by cameras really be? I think that when we're talking about productive exchanges in the field of cyber, particularly when it comes to fighting ransomware and kind of creating a framework, at least normatively so, for talking and responding to ransomware, we should be looking at kind of longer term institutionalized exchanges on cyber and cyber crime. A few examples come to mind. The UN Third Committee's process to elaborate a convention on cybercrime definitely has promise. The G7 and their recent ministerial declarations and commitments in the field of digital and technology are also a great example. Even the behind the scenes diplomatic action and coordination that led to the condemnation of China's cyber attacks with the MS Exchange hack earlier this year, led by countries like the US, UK and Norway, is a great example. I think that when we're looking for a model of productive exchanges, particularly when it comes to talking about the thorny topic of ransomware cyber attacks, we need to problematize our value of global summits and look towards these kind of institutionalized safe spaces for dialogue. Because a lot of the time, these conversations are really awkward. When we're talking about the victims and perpetrators of cyber attacks, there is definitely information and capacity gaps when states are around the same table and they don't really know for example, which cyber criminals are acting within their own borders. A lot of the time, states are the ones behind cyber attacks in the first place. Just as a quick add-on to my earlier point about looking to these other arenas of productive conversation, it's also really important to privilege inclusive representation. A lot of the time, I think, as scholars and academics and practitioners focusing on cyber based in the global north, we have the tendency to adopt a very global, more Eurocentric approach to where we're talking and thinking about cyber. I think it's important when we talk about processes like the UN Third Committee, like the G7 and allies, we need to you know, adopt a very global self-inclusive approach, an approach inclusive of a variety of stakeholders from civil society, the private sector, industry, and so forth, because unless we kind of build these multi-stakeholder global coalitions to counter to talk about, to think about, you know, fighting ransomware cyber attacks and to create, as I mentioned, that kind of framework for approaching it, talking about it in the first place and then fighting it after that. We're not going to get anywhere. A lot of these issues that you've both spoken about demonstrates the blurring of the lines between cybercrime and cybersecurity, the application of norms in cyberspace, and also this problem of attribution and the appropriate or proportionate response to an attack. Now, this attribution conversation is quite big. And it's obviously very murky when you have states that won't admit that they are affiliated with a cyber crime group or a group of hackers. So could you give us an overview of what this discourse looks like and what it means for mitigating cyber attacks and cyber crime and responding to them? Sure. So with the colonial pipeline hack, and for those who are unaware of the, the hack itself, a group called Darkside, who it's believed to be based in, in Russia, 
launched a, a ransomware attack on the IT systems of the pipeline. And the Colonial Pipeline made the decision to take their operational systems offline to avoid basically not being able to bill their customers. And the impact on, on the US was the shutdown of a major pipeline and a disruption to the oil supply um, across the US. So this is what we would call a, an attack on, on critical infrastructure. Now, in terms of attribution, I guess you've got the technical attribution. So this means you can either use digital forensics to look at the ransomware attack itself. Oftentimes, law enforcement or other technical actors can trace the code and have a look at the tools and methods used by this particular actor. It might be the case that an actor such as Darkside will claim responsibility for the attack, or you can also um, follow the money as it were. And if in the case where ransoms are paid, you can trace the wallet where the ransom was paid. Usually um, this is paid in, in cryptocurrency. So you've got the technical attribution, which for, in some cases is quite difficult. And in, in other cases, this just requires on the relevant actors such as law enforcement having that um, digital forensics capability. And then you've also got the public attribution. And this is where ransomware presents a very interesting case because until, I guess, you know, in, in 2020, we were thinking about, um, we were thinking about ransomware, but we were also thinking about state-sponsored attacks. And where ransomware presents a really interesting case for international security is you have this mix between state actors, you know, thinking about cyber threats and ransomware, you know, usually criminal actors. For public attribution, the victim organization or state is usually an organization in the case of ransomware. They are left with the choice of, you know, if they know who is responsible, or if they're quite certain of who is responsible, why would you attribute publicly? So you have to make that decision of what is the utility of attributing publicly. Following on from this, how you attribute and to whom you attribute determines your response options. So with cyber criminals, cybercrime is, is a transnational crime and it knows no borders. It doesn't operate in the nice kind of jurisdictions that law enforcement usually operates in. So that makes responding to cybercrime and, and ransomware quite difficult. And it means that criminal actors can operate with relative impunity. It might be that you find the perpetrators, that you might freeze their assets, that you might disrupt their ransomware ecosystem. But if you take down you know, an actor or two or try and target a group, oftentimes ransomware groups go dark and then pop up later. As Bella has mentioned, for you know, countering threats by state actors, you have a framework of responsible state behaviour. And for threats posed by cybercrime actors, the response options are less clear. And this is where we've heard the Biden administration talking about safe harbor. Safe harbor is the concept that certain countries, for example, the Biden administration, is calling out you know, Russia for doing this, is turning a blind eye or not actively disrupting or addressing cyber criminal actors that are operating from Russia. And there is a greater call for countries to not be a safe harbor for cybercrime actors. And so what does this mean in terms of attribution and where do we go from here? Yes, it is an important point about tackling ransomware. So it's important because it means that we know who is responsible 
for which attacks. It also means that we can trace the development of the techniques to better prepare our responses and mitigation to cybercrime. And it also brings this question about who should bear the responsibility. And if our current frameworks are not adequate enough to address the threats posed by criminal actors, then we need to be having conversations, not just at the high level and, and at international summits, but also having bringing other actors such as the technical community and industry into this conversation as well. There are a couple of strands there that I want to pick up on, but before I do, a question which I know is a rather contentious topic, but what is the debate around paying ransoms? The debate around paying ransoms ultimately falls down to if you ban ransomware payments, then the idea is that you cut off the major financial incentive for ransomware and you you know, make the problem go away in, in a very high level sense. Now, it's not necessarily as simple as that, because by simply banning ransomware payments, you're neglecting the burden that ransomware falls on to the victims. And at the moment, the burden of ransomware falls largely on the victims rather than anybody else. So they have to make the decision whether or not to pay the ransom. And the ideas for banning ransomware payments, you know, in addition to cutting off the financial incentive, there is also the moral argument that by paying ransoms, you are directly funding organized crime, such as, you know, human trafficking and drug trafficking and illicit activity. The reason why this is a complex issue is that when you're paying ransom, there are further opportunities for extortion such as the compromisation of data and whether or not data is leaked on the dark web and criminal actors might demand further payments to you know, stop that from happening. And if you do pay ransom, there is the chance that you're putting a target on your back for further exploitation because you've demonstrated your willingness to the criminal groups that you will pay the ransoms. And why is ransomware so prolific at the moment? And it's because the barriers to entry for cybercrime, such as ransomware, are quite low. As I mentioned, you know, the most common vector is through phishing emails. And actors you know, who are not necessarily sophisticated actors can also purchase ransomware as service so that they can use this you know, pre-packaged ransomware and launch it on you know, an attack sector of their choice. In a recent Chatham House event, one of the speakers spoke about the US's priority to make tackling ransomware a whole-of-government approach. We've seen something similar with the recent ransomware task force where a whole-of-society multi-sector approach has been adopted to ensure that the response is as holistic as possible. Bella, I think this goes a little bit to what you were saying about ensuring inclusivity and representation and multi-stakeholder engagement in global discussions, but I just wanted to know whether you guys think, is this whole of society or whole of government response actually feasible? Can it guarantee that victims will be centred, for example, and how might it do that? And how will it compete with vested corporate interests, for example, and geopolitical priorities that might otherwise dominate the agenda? So when we talk about the whole of society approach, we usually talk about um, the following groups. We talk about the technical community and, and they say, uh, you know, we're usually referring to industry and the tech companies that create the uh, technology infrastructure that we use in our daily lives. We also talk about the you know, public sector and the policymakers who make policy and laws that regulate our relationship with technology. And we also talk about academia and civil society. 
And those three groups are really important as part of our approach to tackling ransomware. In terms of how we address the threats at a local, um, national and regional level, we need the buy-in of the technical community to do things like disrupting the ransomware ecosystem, tracing the money and seizing the financial assets of ransomware actors. We also need the buy-in of law enforcement and computer emergency response teams in terms of mitigating the fallout of ransomware attacks. And we also um, referring to academia and civil society, who, um, as Bella mentioned previously, it's important to have the representation of those groups when you are making policy around ransomware. The reason why it's important to have a whole of government approach is this is important so that ransomware is treated as a national security priority. And I think it's better to have a top-down approach, for example, the approach that the Biden administration is taking with the issuing of executive orders on ransomware and cybercrime. And it also ensures that you have the necessary stakeholders and the cooperation between, for example, law enforcement and national cybersecurity agencies. And it also means that you have the strong links between local and national governments. And I think that, you know, for example, in cyber attacks and ransomware attacks against critical and national infrastructure, this link between the local and national government is really important because oftentimes local governments don't necessarily have the same levels and access to support in incident response. And so if they don't have that level of support, then the impact of ransomware attacks can be you know, really prolonged, as is the case in the ransomware attack on the Irish healthcare system, which disrupted the provision of vital um, healthcare services. I have to say, I completely agree. It's all about trust and buy-in. We need you know, to engage these diverse stakeholders who can then in turn reach and engage with diverse communities and address their diversity of cyber vulnerabilities particularly those felt adversely or amplified by marginalized communities and populations. Only then can we move towards a whole society approach that centers victims in a meaningful and safe way. Thank you both. Of course, as you have both mentioned, this isn't just about big attacks on critical national infrastructure. Ransomware and cyber crimes are felt on a very collective and individual level too. So how do we make dialogue and action on the international level relevant to the average person? Can international dialogue inspire a cultural change in cybersecurity and in, at an individual level? And what's required to make sure that that sticks and that holds? Amrit, I really like the idea of a cultural change in thinking about cybersecurity. But I also have to say that dialogue alone can't inspire good cyber hygiene. However, it can kind of push those conversations to the top of the agenda and put those conversations on the table where it counts and where it matters. We need strategies and toolkits for kind of enhancing societal cyber resilience and, you know, enhancing individual community and government cyber health, particularly for critical national infrastructure and particularly for marginalized populations. For example, the Cyber Peace Institute based in Switzerland, I believe, does a lot on this in the arena of healthcare. However, it's really important to realize that cyber hygiene and enhancing cyber resilience, it goes beyond changing your password once every six months. It goes beyond being aware of what phishing emails are and not to click on suspicious links. You're only as strong as the weakest link as a community, as an organization, as a company, even as a government or multilateral organization. 
as the complexity and almost ambition of cyber criminals increases, so too must our resilience and our awareness and kind of willingness to, you know, move outside of our comfort zones as a society and really embrace a whole of society approach to cyber resilience, even if it's a bit uncomfortable and even if it requires a lot of, say, organizational growing pains, investment, time, resources, energy into building a whole of society strategy and approach. We need to make sure that as, you know, we're on the precipice of unprecedented levels of cybercrime. We're moving beyond just putting out fires. We're building fire-safe communities and fire-safe societies. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Back here in the Chatham House Media Studio with Amrit Swali. Amrit, that was a great interview you did with Esther and Bella there. What would you say was your kind of key takeaway? I think one of the things that both Esther and Bella really stressed was the scale of the problem. So, of course, they mention a lot of this in the interview. But since we recorded the interview, there have also been at least one other high profile ransomware attack. And I think that really just demonstrates the scale of the problem and how tricky it is to find solutions for mitigating it and for ensuring that victims have the right kind of support. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think um, it was interesting, the overlap between our two interviews in that regard, because so many of these challenges, whether it's cybercrime or whether it's attacks on human rights through the digital space or in other forums, they, these are their sort of cross-border challenges, aren't they? And Absolutely. they rely on international cooperation and all of these sorts of things. It's almost like we planned this episode really well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pat ourselves on the back for this one and (laughs) move on to planning our next episode. How, just before we go, how can listeners find out more about the work that Chatham House is doing on cybercrime related issues? So they can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Chatham House ISR. Alternatively, you can check out our website. We're engaged in a lot of projects on cybercrime that have a really global span. And there have also been quite a few articles and publications on cyberspace and cybersecurity, including some really cool explainers and a mini-series of podcasts. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Undercurrents. We will be back in a couple of weeks after a well-earned break with some new interviews for you. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with the rest of the work of Chatham House, then you can check out our website, www.chathamhouse.org. Or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. And if you enjoyed what you heard and you'd like to hear more from Undercurrents, then just search for us on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this episode. And you will find almost 120 other episodes from our archive, which you can check out. That's it from us then. All that's left for me to say is thanks so much for listening.